Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Taub School of Theology, Biola University. For our bonus episode today, we're going to revisit a conversation we've had a couple times uh, on this podcast, which is called Purity Culture, which is basically an umbrella term referred to the way the church has taught purity to young people over the past 20, 25 years, some ways well. And some ways we look back, maybe think, you know what, we can do better theologically with this generation. Uh, My guest, her name is Rachel Joy Welcher, and she wrote a book called Talking Back to Purity Culture. Now, I've read dozens of books and studies on purity culture, and this is the one volume I would recommend for really anybody who says, okay, what mistakes have we made in the past? How can we do better? And what does it mean to effectively teach sexual purity to young people today? This is a really, really interesting book. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, uh, which was first on my YouTube channel, which again is in partnership with the Apologetics Program. But uh, as usual, if you enjoy, we hope you'll consider sharing it with a friend. So enjoy this interview with Rachel Joy Welcher, Talking Back to Purity Culture. What did the church get right about sexual purity and what did it get wrong? These are super important questions that we're going to talk about today. And I'm here with a guest, a new friend of mine. Her name is Rachel Joy Welcher, and she's written a book called Talking Back to Purity Culture. And what I love about this is she reflects back on the sexual message that was given in the church for a long time, saying, here's some things we did well. But here's some things we can do better with a spirit of grace, but also a commitment to scripture. So what's fun about this is we just met for the first time here, digitally speaking. But when I wrote my book, Chasing Love, Mm -hmm. I was trying to take some of the criticism of purity culture and Mm -hmm. write what is really a biblical sexual ethic for students. She took some of the criticism of purity culture and saying, all right, adults, what do we learn from this? Let's do better. So similar vision, but a little bit of a different audience. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So Rachel, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me start by asking you, why would you write a book called Talking Back to Purity Culture? Tell me the story behind it. Well, there are a few different reasons. Uh, When I was in graduate school at St. Andrews, I decided to study this for my dissertation and to go back and reread the books of my youth to see if they um, actually were taking messages from scripture or if we had veered. Um, But the personal reason was that I grew up as a pastor's kid. I grew up in purity culture. I read the books and I followed all the rules to the best of my ability. You know, met a guy in Bible college, dated for years, um, had the influence and approval of my friends and parents and church. My dad did the wedding ceremony. And about five years into my marriage, my husband walked away from the Christian faith and divorced me. Wow. And so, yeah, so I was left um, to action if I followed all the marriage ending. Uh, because I had been to books that if I obeyed God and stayed pure, stayed a virgin until marriage, that I would have a great marriage, a great sex life, and lots of children. And that is not what happened. And so Mm. I wanted to go back and ask the question, were these promises that I have come, had come to expect, did they really come from the Bible or did we um, get some things wrong in purity culture? And so that's kind of how it all started. Well, I know you've grieved and move on. I'm so sorry that happened to you. 
And uh, at some point, I just I'm intrigued by the story behind that. I sense that might be a whole nother book that you tackle at some point. But let's talk about let's define purity culture, because sometimes I get the impression that purity culture is any bad experience somebody had in the church with a message about biblical sexual ethics gets lumped into this pot of purity culture. But I think you mean something a little bit more specific than that. Right. That's a very good point. So when I talk about modern purity culture, I'm specifically referring to American evangelical purity culture, not because purity culture only existed in America or in recent times, but I'm addressing this movement uh, coming out of the 70s and 80s that was really a response to this threat of PD residency. Okay. So just parents and youth leaders and teachers who are worried about teenagers and okay. uh, a very understandable and genuine worry. And the response was to present this message of abstinence that focused mainly on staying a virgin until marriage. Um, and while the core message of sex belonging in marriage between one man and one woman was biblical, it gained a lot of baggage along the way. Okay. And I can go into detail yeah. as much as you want. Yeah, well, we that. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mentioned purity promises. Um, we call it, you know, kind of the prosperity gospel with culture. Uh, but in order to be this active, it had to, it gained this, um, I'm trying to think of what to call it. I, I call it a sexy carrot that was dangled in front of kids. Okay. Um, okay. That not only do you just obey God, but that if you, if you obey God, you will get these things. So again, you will gotcha. get married at some point, probably at a young age. You will have mind-blowing sex from night one, and you'll have children with ease. These were some of the main promises. And so purity was depicted as something that had a finish line, and that the finish line was marriage. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, Christine Gardner's book, Making Chastity Sexy, that you mm-hmm. cite in your book, she says something to the effect yeah. of abstinence is used to sell shoes, shampoo, cars, and it's also used to sell abstinence. And I thought, what a fascinating point right? that we actually, in purity culture, kind of took the script of the world and said, mm-hmm. oh, the world, you think you have good sex. No, 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 come to the church. We have better yep. sex. But that's not a biblical right. sexual ethic. Now, let's let's come back to this idea of the mm. um, sexual yeah. prosperity gospel. But first, I want to know what you think purity culture got right. Because to me, I think it at least got a few things right. Number one, it shows that sex is a big deal. It matters. Now, yes. sometimes the message was it was the biggest deal, whereas that's right. not true. But it at least said it matters what we do with our bodies, with our thought life, right. with our relationships. Right. I think it got that right. I think it also Mm -hmm. got right that young people can resist the sexual ethic of the culture, that there's different scripts and young people can resist this. I think it tried to empower young people to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a number of positive things. What do you think? Did I miss anything that you would say at least is positive from purity culture? No, I think you listed the um, the main things that I think purity culture got right as well. There was an empowerment. Um, I talk about in my book how that empowerment was positive, but also had some negative consequences, especially when it came to trying to empower women that they could control what happened to them. So that's where things got a little complicated. Um, But I absolutely agree that the main message that 
sex is for marriage and that our bodies matter. That is biblical. Mm. Some of the things we added to that message were very damaging, and I don't think it was intentional, but it's our job now in hindsight to deconstruct that and see how we can be more biblical moving forward. So how do you balance looking back in hindsight Mm. with grace to those who came before Mm. But criticizing right. their ideas because I know, Rachel, if I was 21 years old and a book like mm-hmm. I Kiss Dating Goodbye was based upon my ideas, I can't oh, imagine man. how much rightful criticism I would get because what did I really <laughs> know at 21? Right. So right. I look back and I think, you know, sometimes people have critiqued my father for the Why Wait campaign saying, you know, mm-hmm. you talked about STDs too much and scared kids. I said, OK, mm-hmm. like, like, like fair. But you got to remember, just like the pandemic right now, people are scared Mm -hmm. with COVID. There was real fear of AIDS. And I remember as a kid thinking, like, can you get AIDS from a mosquito bite? Like, that was a genuine conversation. So how do you look like in what spirit should we look back at Mm -hmm. those and say, you know, we need a correction here. But trying to Mm -hmm. show grace to them that we hope people in the future who maybe watch this in 10 years go, yeah, Sean and Rachel missed this. Well, I think that's it right there is when we think about the fact that we will be under the same scrutiny that um, hindsight is always twenty twenty. that there will be things. I, I think I haven't said this in my book, but there would be things that I won't get right. And I recognized mm. that um, just from the very beginning. I mean, the process of writing the book was a very prayerful one, mainly because I knew that I was calling into question what other brothers and sisters in Christ had spent their life doing. And I took that very, very seriously because I know that I am not a perfect person. And Mm -hmm. so I tried my best to treat the the books and the authors that I was critiquing with grace, recognizing that their motives, from everything I could tell, their motives were very pure. They were trying to help kids. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that's what you're trying to do. And so we are always um, prone to overcorrecting. So like you said, with the threat of STDs, when fear is involved, it's very easy to overcorrect. And so what purity culture critiques tend to be doing, and you and I have both read the books, a lot of them are overcorrecting and just throwing out God's sexual ethic altogether. And, And that's wrong. And so my goal was to stick to scripture, but to try to correct without overcorrecting. And I guarantee I didn't get it perfectly right, but, um, I have a huge respect for the men and women who were trying to help young people pursue God with their bodies and hearts. For those of you just joining us, we're here with Rachel Joy Welcher. She wrote a book called Talking Back to Purity Culture, and I've read dozens of books and articles, Mm. and yours is the number one book I will recommend for, Mm. I think, staying faithful to Christian sexual ethic, but offering a critique of the message that went before saying Mm. we can do better. So if you're looking for one book in this area— I recommend it, which is one of the main reasons that I wanted to have you on. Well, let's move to the criticism in in this spirit. Now, the sexual prosperity gospel, ironically, is kind of this idea that if young people will just not have sex now, and typically that's physical sex and remain a virgin, God will reward them with endless sexual bliss in marriage. It's kind of like the way you say we've made an idol out of marriage, Have we made an idol out of marriage? Right. Well, I think if we ask the singles in our churches, they would absolutely say yes. Um, And one of the reasons that they would say that marriage has become an idol is because it's a constant focus when talking about purity as though the problem of 
lust or sexual impurity is solved by marriage as though um, that's the solution and that's the goal. But scripture doesn't talk about uh, sexual purity that way. Jesus was single. Um, Some of our greatest heroes of the faith were single. And so clearly there isn't a finish line until we die when it comes to sexual purity. So to depict marriage as the goal really discourages those who are in um, a celibate lifestyle, Mm. whether for many different reasons, you know, I have same sex attracted friends who, unless God changes their desire, um, will probably stay celibate their whole lives. And so Mm. to depict marriage as the goal is very discouraging to them as they're trying to walk in Christ-likeness. There are people who um, are single who would like to be married, and to depict marriage as the ultimate fulfilling goal of the Christian life is incredibly discouraging to them. I think we have to honor marriage the way that Scripture honors it, but remember that marriage isn't the goal for the Christian life. It's one way to live for Christ, Um, but it's not a promise, and it's not the only way to become a mature Christian. Rachel, that is such an interesting point that sometimes purity culture gave the message, just keep yourself sexually pure now. And then when you get married, mm-hmm. all of your troubles will go away. But then when you get married, right. you still find other people attractive. You still ha- you have conflict in mm-hmm. your marriage. And it's like, sure. wait a minute, uh, this didn't go away. In fact, sometimes it right. can increase because you think it's going to fix it. Right. And it actually right doesn't. So one thing I say to young people I say is if you can't learn to control yourself now, and I don't mean by like grit, I mean by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. by grace right. in your life, you're not going to magically be able to when you get married. So it's right. trying to right. help young people realize the choices they're making now, Care we carry mm-hmm. our character into that marriage. And I think that's Absolutely. one of the things we're getting at. Now, one of the criticisms that, that you talk about in your book is just this over-focus on virginity. And you say the question right. is not what we did in the past, but what we're doing now. Talk about that if you don't mind. Right. Sure. Well, I think that it's not that I want to demonize virginity or act as though it doesn't matter. But if we are looking at scripture, sexual purity is way more all-encompassing than just virginity, right? It's mm. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount talks about looking at someone with lust being like adultery. So sexual purity encompasses our thoughts, our body, our mind, our heart, not just this one act. And so we've all heard the stories of, you know, Bible church kids who tried to get around the virginity rule and did all sorts of other things that were dangerous sexually, maybe not protected, um, things that could cause STDs as well. But also they thought that they were somehow Um, fulfilling this abstinence pledge, but they really weren't honoring God with their bodies and hearts. Mm. And so my problem is that when we treat virginity as the definition of purity, we're actually not being biblical. And the other thing is, is that virginity is a state that um, some people can't keep by choice. So we all know people who've been sexually abused. And to create this message that virginity is the ultimate gift you can give your spouse is incredibly discouraging to those who've had that gift Mm. stolen. And also it's not true. Uh, The greatest gift you can give your spouse is a life surrendered to Christ, whether you're a virgin or not. Um, So we have to get that right. And this idea that being a virgin is the best thing when you get to marriage. um, That's, that's not the rhetoric I see in scripture. I think it's a great thing if you can do that. Um, But it's not the thing. And so those who've sinned sexually, there's so much hope for you that you can have a good marriage. And too many of the books I read tried to scare kids and say, if you have sex before marriage, your marriage is doomed. 
And that's just not true. There's so much forgiveness and grace in Christ. You know, there's something powerful about somebody who understands biblical teaching and makes the decisions God wants us to make for life, because there's a kind of flourishing Mm -hmm. that comes from living within God's will. But equally as beautiful is somebody, and we all, it's not like it's one or the other, who falls short, makes mistakes, but becomes renewed and transformed. And let's forget the term secondary virginity, because that implies like, you know, the B prize, what Christianity is about right. is grace and redemption and transformation. Mm-hmm. That is just as beautiful of a story mm-hmm. and a life, in some ways even more so. So I think that balance that you're bringing mm-hmm. in is really helpful. Now, you said uh, we shouldn't define uh, purity just as virginity. I'm curious, how right. would you actually define sexual mm-hmm. purity? What would be your definition of it? Ooh, well, so... One of the reasons I avoided creating a list of extra biblical um, rules in my book is because I grew up reading too many lists like that. Yep. So I actually define sexual purity as Jesus himself. Um, that sounds strange, but he is the source of our purity. And so when we look at it that way, those who are in Christ actually have a purity that is permanent. So this, these, mm. these images that I grew up with, the, the crinkled rose, the used car, the chewed up gum— those were images um, to communicate your worth after you sin sexually. Yeah. Those images, not only are they incredibly damaging to victims of sexual abuse and sexual sinners, um, which we all are, but they're also not biblical because when we're saved, our purity and our forgiveness and our righteousness come from Christ. And Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not that what we do in our bodies doesn't matter. It does. Obedience matters. Scripture is so clear on that. But when it comes to our purity, it really is something that can't be damaged Hmm. if we're in Christ. And I think that's that's a really important thing. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate you resisting Mm. specific rules here. So let me (laughs) tell you about a conversation I had with my students. We were Mm -hmm. talking about how we love God with our bodies and Mm -hmm. with our souls, the way we think and with our actions. And we were talking about how a kiss on the cheek actually means something different than a kiss in the forehead. One's like a Mm -hmm. blessing, one is equal. And then I said, what about kissing the lips? They're like, well, it could be romantic, but in some cultures, that's even like a brotherly affection. I was in Russia and saw two Christian men kissing the lips, and it was like a sign of just brotherly love, Mm -hmm. even though that means something different in our culture. And I asked them, I said, what about a French kiss? And all my high school students at that Mm -hmm. point are like, a French kiss carries romantic and sexual inclinations. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't escape that one. And then a girl says to me, she goes, does that mean if a kiss is sexual, you shouldn't do it before you're married? Now, Mm. instead of answering, I said, now you're asking the right question. I said, Mm. I don't want to give you a specific rule. I can tell you oral sex is out. That's obvious. But Mm -hmm. the question we need to be asking is what do bodily acts mean? And do we have the right relationship to express those bodily acts? That resists the rules and I think brings the question back to what does it mean to appropriately love somebody? So that's how I approach it. Do you agree with that? Would you look at it differently? Tell me your honest thoughts. No, I, I really appreciate your approach that your goal is to get them to think because one of the problems with handing teenagers a book or sliding it under their door, which is what 
so many parents did in good faith. They, they sure. really were trying to do the best thing. But the problem with that is that it doesn't teach teenagers to develop discernment. Um, mm. And so then when they actually are in situations where they have to make the decision themselves, there's no parents around, nothing like that. Um, they don't have the discernment to know what to do. And so the best thing we can do for our teenagers is to help them to develop that conscience and discernment. And Good. so you're asking them questions. And that's where we have to start. It's not that there aren't some very clear biblical rules, but when we get to extra biblical rules, those just negate thinking and they negate discernment. One of the analogies you talk about in the book is called the light switch analogy. The expectation right. that someone can go from virginal and non-sexual to mm -hmm. uninhibited sexual activity on the honeymoon, just like flip on the light switch. You say right. as a result of this, some people associate sex with shame because they've been mm -hmm. told sex is bad or just right. don't do it. What's the solution right. to this problem in your mind? Mm. Well, some might say that the solution is to slowly work up to intimacy before marriage. Um, but what I would say is that actually the solution is patience within marriage. Hmm. There's something so beautiful about getting to know your spouse in a way that no one else is getting to know them in that covenantal, um, very exclusive bond. And it takes time. And the books didn't talk about that. In fact, the books were so intent on um, getting kids to 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 abstinence that they said that, that your honeymoon night, night one, would be just this uh, nirvana, sexual nirvana. <laughs> Well, most, most, uh, you know, Christian virgins who got married would tell you that's not what their honeymoon was like. Not that they would say it was bad, although some have some traumatic stories, but there's so much pressure on Christians to have sex on night one. And I actually think that's very, um, I don't think that that pressure should be there because they need to be willing to build up to it if they want to. Um, you can have sex on night one or you can take your time and get to know one another. But this idea that it'll immediately be amazing um, takes away from the fact that you have to get to know your spouse sexually. And that's there's something very beautiful about that. And I think we need to emphasize that, that it can take years. And that's a good thing. Mm. It's this beautiful, exclusive, mysterious relationship. I, I, I love to hear you say this because there's something about coming into a marriage and not having it figured out. And like figuring mm -hmm. things out together and making mistakes right. and growing, I think is a part of the bonding experience that is beautiful right. and it's good. And uh, mm -hmm. not having those expectations on night one is just going to set you up for much right. more realistic experience. There's one other thing that I, I, I think is a part of correcting the light switch analogy, which is to not give the message, mm -hmm. just don't do it. One of the messages that my father mm -hmm. gave me growing up is he would say over and over again, he'd say, sex is good and it's beautiful. What happens mm -hmm. is we take it outside of God's mm -hmm. uh, command. That's where people get hurt. That's where sinfulness steps mm -hmm. in. But sex mm -hmm. in a God-honored relationship is a good, beautiful thing. And that, mm -hmm. I think, helped me within the light switch analogy thing that it wasn't like right. the end all be all, but it wasn't the message, right. don't do it and then do it. The message was sex mm -hmm. is good and you're meant to do it, but in the right time, in the right relationship, that just mm -hmm. took away some of those expectations yeah. for me. Um, well, and I would add too that um, one thing I would add is that 
we need to stop demonizing our sexuality and recognize that there's a difference between being a sexual being, which is how God created us, and call, he called that good, um, and sexual sin. And so if mm. Christian teenagers can recognize that being sexual, having those desires is not in and of itself sinful, it's what we do with those desires. Um, if we're demonizing not just sexual sin, but our sexuality as a whole, it will be even more difficult than once in marriage to feel like we can express ourselves in that way. So mm. it's important that we teach our kids to expect their sexuality so that it doesn't take them by surprise and make them feel as though they are sinning just because they're having sexual feelings. Um, that's something that's part of being human. And I think we need to do a better job of distinguishing between sexuality and sexual sin. Amen. I love that. So tell me, since you mentioned it, what is the difference between sexuality and sexual sin? Well, that's a tough question. Uh, I don't know if you got the chance in your research to read Deborah Hirsch. Um, I think it's called Redeeming mm -hmm. Sex is her book. But she had a really interesting definition, and I'm still kind of mulling it over to see where I land. But she says that sexuality is not just the desire for intercourse. It's also our just desire for human connection to know and be known. And so if we take her definition of sexuality, mm -hmm. then we can express um, aspects of that with in, in friendship and community. And what I'm not, I'm not trying to sexualize friendship or community. What right, I'm saying right. is that singles and, and Wesley Hill talks about this too, um, when he yep. writes about spiritual friendship, right? That we can have a type of intimacy not the exclusive kind you have in marriage, but we can have intimacy within the body of Christ. And so there is a place for singles to know and be known outside of just sex. Intercourse doesn't have the market cornered on intimacy. And so I think that that's one kind of different way to view sexuality is the way De Deborah Hirsch talks about it as a desire to know and be known and that there are different levels of that. So that's just one thing to throw out there. It's, it was very thought provoking to yeah. read. There, there's a book called Mere Sexuality. You maybe have come across this one. I think it's Andrew Wilson. He talks about Jesus was a okay. sexual being. Now, he doesn't mean sexual right. activity, but Jesus right. was male. Jesus had right. sexual desires, and that's good. Right. God made us male and female. Mm -hmm. He talks about even in my relationship with my sisters or with my mom, there is mm -hmm. a sexuality component because it's male and female that's different with okay. my wife, but we bring right. who we are as male and female to all our relationships. Mm -hmm. I thought that's so helpful because our culture wants mm -hmm. to just say everything is about having sex and through a sexual lens. And we're saying it's much bigger than this and our sexuality is tied in a sense to who we are. Rachel, why do you think sexual issues are so important compared to other fleshly desires? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, our culture is just saturated in sex. And so I think it's it's very much on our minds because it's everywhere, right? It's on the billboard, driving to church. And so um, we can't really avoid it. And so this idea that we think about it all the time might be true, but I think we think about it all the time because it's everywhere we look. Yeah. And so issues of sexuality, Satan just loves to use sexuality to cause um, Christians to stumble. And we see it all the time, right, with these celebrity pastors that fall into it. And so I think it's that we're really we're saturated in it and we're surrounded by it. So it becomes more of an issue. Um, I remember a guy I interviewed said that when he became a Christian, he went to the Christian bookstore to see what it meant to be a man of God. 
And when he got to the section for young men, every book was about lust. And he huh. was a little bit confused by that. And he, um, that really communicated to him that the main way to honor God was through this one focus on sexual sin. And while I would agree that sexual sin is an important topic, I think we have actually overemphasized it in, in ways that have been damaging. Because if we were to study, say, the character of God, we would be actually learning how to honor him with our bodies. And so mm-hmm. it's not that we shouldn't talk about it, but I actually do think that in youth culture, Christian youth culture, we've overemphasized it, um, perhaps because we see that we're in a sex-saturated society. But if we would focus more on what it means to be a Christian and to walk in godliness, sexuality is a part of that. I think that's a fair way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I I wrote a blog a couple weeks ago and I said two mistakes about sex. One is sex is nothing. And sometimes in the sexual revolution, it was like, you know, sex is like drinking a glass of water. And I always like, I don't know what water this person's drinking, but the idea was to like make it just a normal bodily function. Well, that's a mistake. Right. It's also a mistake to say that sex is everything. Now, I don't think it's the biggest deal, but you know, first Corinthians six says, sexual morality is the one sin you commit against your own body and it's also let's face it like food and sexuality are two of the strongest human urges that we have so there's something sacred about sexuality and marriage but we Mm -hmm. don't want to oversell that and say well gossip doesn't matter and pride doesn't matter that's just completely not biblical either so there's a tough balance there now a question came up earlier let me jump in and ask you about modesty What's your concern with how purity culture approached modesty? Oh, did I lose you again? Oh, no. I hope <laughs> she'll call call us back. You guys are hanging in there with me, doing awesome. This just happens these days, I guess. All right, she's back. Here we go. I thought she was back. I don't see an image. Um, guest is in the green room. I'm bringing her over, but we are not. Can you hear me, Rachel? It says I can't hear you or see you. Um, oh, there you are. You're back. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Rachel? I can actually hear you. But uh, oh, that's fine. That's okay. That happens. <laughs> adventures, adventures in technology. So you were, we're asking just, me a question about modesty. Yep. Purity, culture, and modesty. What's your critique? Oh, boy. That's a loaded question. <laughs> but it is the main question I think I could ask. So the thing is, is that Scripture does talk about modesty. Um, although if we study the passages that we tend to refer to, a lot of times they're talking about uh, Sandra Glenn wrote a really great article on this for Fathom, but they're talking about not flaunting your wealth. Um, but modesty is is an important topic because um, our bodies matter and sexuality matters. But I think the issue is that in purity culture, there was an overemphasis to women on modesty. Uh, men were not talked to about modesty hardly at all. When, women were talked to about, uh, to about it so often that the women I interviewed said that they grew up believing not that mo- immodesty was a sin, but their bodies themselves were sinful, oh, um, that beauty was sinful. So one of the problems is that women are given this impression that they cause men to sin. 
And it can happen. Mm. I remember just thinking that, you know, if I bent over and didn't, you know, hold my, that I, I would be somehow causing a man to stumble. And so there's this pressure placed on women as though the actions of men are on them instead of on the man. So what I would tell a woman is, if you are dressing immodestly to attract sexual attention, you are being selfish, and that is a sin. If a man lusts after you, that is his sin. And it's really important that we separate culpability mm. when it comes to this, okay? Because mm. it's so important. Um, I have a whole chapter in my book about how there's certain rhetoric in purity culture that resembles rape culture, where we get to the point where we blame women for what happens to them, what men do to them. And that's part of it stems from this rhetoric about modesty. So it, it really is important that we get it right. It is wrong for a woman to try to cause a man to stumble. But if a man stumbles, that is his choice. And the reason I say that is because scripture says that those of us in Christ have the power to say no to sin. That goes mm -hmm. for men and women. That, that's really helpful because I think about my daughter, I want to talk to her about how she dresses. And there mm -hmm. is a truth that people will treat you differently, judge you differently, mm -hmm. right or wrong, based on how right. you dress. So I want her to see that, hey, go to a party and you gotta be mm -hmm. really smart and you gotta be wise. There are people who will take advantage of you. Right. But I don't want to shame somebody in particular, my daughter, right. if then somebody does take advantage of her. So you're saying we can kind of have both in the sense of let's have some responsibility how men and women dress and carry our bodies. We're responsible for ourselves. If somebody else right. lusts or takes advantage of us sexually or physically, that's on them. And in a sense, right. both those can be true at the same time. Is that fair? That's fair. Yep. That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. Good. That's that's really helpful. Um, one of the sections I thought was really interesting in the book is that you were told through sexual, uh, through purity culture, that if you just mm -hmm. follow a certain script, you'll get married happily ever after. Mm -hmm. There was no talk about singleness. Right. Then all of a sudden you find yourself in your 30s single. Mm -hmm. And that was a very different experience than in your 20s. And I can only imagine 40s, 50s, 60s beyond mm -hmm. the entire equation would right. change. But talk about right. how you think maybe we've fallen short in talking to young people about singleness. I don't think we prepared people for singleness. We, again, we talked about marriage as the finish line. And we also talked about marriage as though it was a promise. Um, and so, so many women and men now in their 30s and 40s, um, I talked to them and interviewed them. And they feel as though God failed them, that he had mm. promised them something. And, and, you know, to get real serious, there are so many people who are walking away from the church and the gospel altogether because of this. God didn't make that promise, but they heard it from the church. They heard it from Christians. And so they're associating it as a broken promise from God himself. And this is serious. That's one of the reasons I wrote this book is that we have to untangle which messages actually came from scripture and God and which messages we kind of made up and became this Christian subculture. So I think that um, there are a lot of singles who are wrestling with disenchantment and disappointment. And what I would want to tell them is that you are loved and you are valuable, even if you never get Amen. married. Amen. If you should yeah. read 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, I think it's very clear that singleness and marriage, two equal, honorable ways of loving and serving mm -hmm. the Lord. This is That's what right. scripture teaches. But when I ask young people, when I talk to them, I'll say, hey, how many of you mm -hmm. heard a sermon on singles, singleness? Almost mm -hmm. none of them. 
almost none right, of them. Right. Now that people are getting married later and some less mm-hmm. likely to get married, it's not like we need a new theology. We need to go back to the theology actually taught in scripture that right. values singleness as a beautiful way of knowing right. God and serving the church. And it, it grieves me that people lose their faith because they've been given a false promise. Mm-hmm. Um, l- let me jump in and ask you some more. I'm, I'm curious how you think... One of the things that we've done is we tried to sell uh, abstinence because you'll get this awesome sex life in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's a mistake because that's not promised. It's not biblical and it doesn't always work out that way. But on the flip side, when you talk a number of studies that I've seen and even document in my book is that religious people in particular, Christians as a whole, tend to report greater satisfaction Mm -hmm. in their sex lives. And I think there's very good data to back this up. So it makes sense on one level that if we live and use our bodies the way God wants us to, there would be a kind of flourishing. So Mm. in your mind, unless you disagree with the premise of this question, how do we talk about the good design and the beauty of the way sex Mm. is meant to be without using that as the selling point because it just doesn't always pan out that way for a range of different reasons. Right. Well, you talk about this in your book. You talk about essentially what it would look like if every single person on earth followed God's sexual ethic, right? Mm. Um, And in that case, there would be no rape. There would be no um, divorce, all those things. Now, one of the things I talk about in my book is that we have to acknowledge life... um, post-fall, right? So there is divorce, there is rape. Um, There is, you know, people would cheat on their spouse and not tell them and give them an STD. I mean, there are realities like that, that we have to acknowledge. And so Hmm. what I, what I really want Christians, young people to understand is that they can follow all the rules and they might still experience, um, they might experience consequences that they didn't earn. But that doesn't mean they're being punished by God. The thing is, is that we have to have a better theology of suffering, right? So I think you are right. And we know a lot of couples that follow the rules and are flourishing in their sex life and in their marriage. But I also know people who are experiencing unintended consequences of someone else's sin or just life under this, you know, in post-fall. So I, w- I think you're right, and, but I think we have to balance it with the fact that Christians can suffer and still be loved by God, right? Um, mm. So this, this idea, this study you talk about that Christians report being more sexually fulfilled, my first thought is that they um, are feeling that way because they are, it, hopefully they're emulating a selfless love, right? Mm. Um, and it makes sense that mm. to love, to try to love as Christ loves would, uh, would absolutely mean you have a better sex life. Not necessarily more, you know, um, physically pleasurable or thrilling than, um, right. you know, the world, but you're going to have a, a it's going to be safer. It's going to be more about love and selflessness. And that is true sexual flourishing within marriage. So that does make sense to me, that statistic. And I think we can teach that while not neglecting the fact that um, there are people in Christian marriages who have sexual pain and it's not anyone's fault, right? That's good. Um, mm -hmm. That's a good balance ring. I appreciate that. Now, we've been rolling here and I forgot that you actually read my book yesterday and I said, bring some questions. Um, feel free right. to ask me anything. If you agree with something, disagree <laughs> something, what were your thoughts that you wanted to bring to this this conversation? Well, I really did appreciate um, that 
you framed your book. You said that the the goal um, in is always to come back to the question of how do I seek God and his kingdom in my relationships with other people? So even though it's a book about love and sex, you keep returning to this question, which is basically the the first and second greatest commandment, right? How do we love God and our neighbor with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And I think that is the question we have to return to, um, whether we're single, divorced, married, a teenager, um, a widower, whatever our circumstance or whatever even our uh, relationship status that's the question we need to ask. And you can't go wrong um, if you ask that question, right? So in marriage, sex is not just about you. It's not just about personal fulfillment. It's about expressing unity and self-giving and love. And so that question relates to that. In singleness, um, how are you treating other people? How are you treating someone on a date? Are you treating them with dignity and selflessness and love? If you're taking advantage of them sexually, that's not loving your neighbor. And so I think that the way you frame your entire book leaves a lot of room to have a very biblical discussion of these things. Um, but my main question for you actually was sure. thinking through how the books of my youth about purity culture were internalized in some really damaging ways. How do you want your book to be read? That's kind Ooh, of my question. That That is a great <laughs> question. I appreciate that. So one of the things that I noticed you said in your book is you said there's a lot of books you'd recommend, but not to have any of them read without an adult or other mentors to process yeah. it with you. That was one of my yeah. big takeaways from what what you said. Even if we agree with something in a book, a 14, mm-hmm. 16, 17 year old doesn't have the ability to really process it. So on one mm-hmm. hand, if any kid reads it for any reason, that's a win because I believe in what I wrote. But the intention of mm-hmm. it is, uh, for example, I had a mom uh, who wrote a review on Amazon. She said, I read this at night to my son. I read mm-hmm. that. I'm like, oh my gosh, here's a mom. I can't remember if she said he's 14, 15 years old and just reading mm-hmm. out loud the chapters and talking wow. it through with her son. I was like, that is beautiful. That. That's the way it's meant to be. Yep. I have a number of people using it in a classroom who will mm-hmm. just well, of course, there's discussion and there's dialogue right. and there's space to agree and disagree and process right. the ideas. Uh, youth pastors use it. The bottom line is that quite a few times in the book, I'll say, I'm not going to tell you exactly how far is too far, but here's the biblical principle. Mm-hmm. Talk to your youth right. pastor. Talk to your parents. Get mm-hmm. some wisdom of those who've gone before you because it's a book about right. relationships. It should be read in relationships so Amen. that's that's, that's awesome. the big that's a big goal i think we have some some common ground there rachel one of my favorite yeah. lines in your book um honestly this might be one of the biggest this takeaways and when i heard this i was like why didn't i think about this this is something if i went back i would include in my book now <laughs> had i read it before so i'm gonna give you huge props for this one but you said here's a direct line it says the problem of male lust is solved not by looking away from women but by mm-hmm. looking at them correctly as right. more than their physical bodies. That's that right. is beautiful. Tell me what mm. you mean by that. Ooh. <laughs> the books that I read about male lust, um, they talked so much about women as obstacles to purity or as outlets um, sexually in marriage. And it was really devastating to see that these books written to help men be godly turned women into one aspect, their sexuality, their bodies, just reduce them 
to just one one thing about us, but we are um, made. The imago day is um, for both genders, right? We are all made in the image of yep. God, and I think that we we don't solve lust by first focusing on lust. We solve lust first by viewing each other correctly and biblically, which mm. is scripture says we are brothers and sisters in Christ in all purity. It says that we are co-heirs of the kingdom. It says we are image bearers of a holy God. And if we don't emphasize those things first, then we don't have a foundation for talking about um, viewing men and women with with respect and without lust. Okay, so these books that just focused completely on the bodies of women as the um, the temptation completely neglected culpability, personal culpability, and sure. also the fact that women are not just bodies. And so I do think that we have to start in the right place, and that is with the Imago Day. What I like about that is men are often told, and young boys, when you see a woman, like dart your eyes, look away. Like condition right. yourself that that's the first thought. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is the first so- thought should be, that's a person made in the image of God. That's right. Body and soul. What does that's it mean right. to love that person in terms of yeah. my words, my touch, and in the way I look at that person. That is so simple, and yet it's profound, and I think it's honoring. So Mm -hmm. that, I just got, that is one of my favorite things that you said in the book, and I hope that picks up and more and more people will talk about that Mm -hmm. um, moving forward. Okay, so about, it's probably been a dozen years, when I was teaching a Christian high school class, I asked my students, (laughs) I said, these are high school seniors, they'd been Christian churches, homes, schools, their whole life. I said, if you're Mm going to sum up the sexual ethic you've learned growing up, what would it be? I'll never forget word for word what this girl said. She said, don't have sex. It's bad. If you do, you'll get AIDS and die. (laughs) Word for word. Wow. I heard that was like, oh my gosh, what happened? Now, I want (laughs) to hear from you. If uh, somebody asked that question, what should like the Twitter or short Instagram post response be? I'm looking for like that elevator pitch that oh, just captures okay. why, sh- what, what, so in a sense, like why should a young person be sexually pure or what is God's desire for sexual purity for young people? What would that mm. be? Well, in my book, I say that obedience is not a ladder to heaven. It's a form of worship. And so hmm. the pursuit of sexual purity is, is not what earns our purity. Our purity comes from Christ, and it's unchanging. Hmm. But our pursuit of sexual purity is about worshiping the God who saved us and loved us and made us pure to begin with. Hmm. And we will fall, and we will stumble, and he will forgive and our purity, it, it remains intact because Jesus is the source of our purity. So obedience is important, um, as imperfect as we'll be at it, but it is not a ladder to heaven. It is a form of worship. That's So in other words, you rooted it in God's character and in our obedience, not earning something, right. but the way God has designed us to live, that actually sets mm-hmm. us free. That it word obedience be. has a bad taste in our culture, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Is there a way to give that a good taste, so to speak? Or does it Mm -hmm. really only make sense when we know who God is 
and it mm-hmm. starts with his character, then obedience makes sense. Like, how do we? And I'm not saying our message should, I'm not saying give me this awesome sexual purity message where a kid goes, yes, I want to be obedient. (laughs) But on the flip side, I also want to reframe the goodness of what obedience Mm -hmm. is meant to be that I think our hearts really cry out for. So is there a way that we could reframe that with young people that they would grasp the goodness and importance of obedience? Well, I'll tell you this. Even when I was um, sitting on my bathroom floor crying because my husband was going to divorce me. So mm-hmm. I was suffering, even though I hadn't you know, brought that on myself. Even when I was sobbing, knowing that I was being obedient and I was following God um, gave me this peace that surpasses all understanding. And so even if your obedience isn't leading you to this, you know, romance novel whirlwind, you know, uh, wedding in that moment, even if you are suffering on the bathroom floor, if you are obeying God, you can have that peace that he is with you. Not that he abandons you when you sin, but that sure. there's a peace that comes with obedience. And I think that's what flourishing means. It doesn't always mean that we're happy. Um, it doesn't always mean that things will go perfectly, but it means sure. that God is with us and we can have that peace that we are following him. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but that's just been my experience. That's a great story. And you're speaking personally from what obedience brings, a kind of contentment, Mm -hmm. a kind of peace. And really, when we talk about sexuality, isn't this what it's about? That when we live the way God wants us to live, regardless of whether it's the best sex or not, whether you're married or single, there's a deeper contentment. There's a deeper peace of knowing that we're living the way we're designed to live that's some of the richness of the kingdom that's different from what the world has to offer. Um, That's it right there. That's it. I think that's beautiful. If you have questions for Rachel, uh, throw them in the, in the Q and a, we'll get to those. I have one more for you. And then maybe we'll have time for a couple questions from folks. Um, But one question I had for you is you critique the idea that women are supposed to tame men with a civilizing (laughs) effect because it puts the duty on women to tame men tell me your critique with that i see the question just popped up here for meredith we'll come to that um in just a minute but tell me what your critique was uh with with that idea well the main reason i didn't like that um actually there are two reasons is that i think it dehumanizes men and women and so this idea i don't see in scripture um, i see in christian culture and in books this idea that men must be tamed i see it in secular culture as well Um, But in scripture, you don't see Adam as someone who needs Eve because he's wild, a wild barbarian. You see Adam as someone who needs Eve because it is it is good for man to not be alone because he needed someone who was different, but the same. Right. The animals were not human. Yep. And Eve, Eve was the same, but different. Um, And so that's why he needed Eve. But there's not this there's not this depiction of Adam running rogue and crazy. And then Eve gets there and suddenly he puts a napkin, you know, tucks a napkin into his shirt (laughs) and and combs his hair. Um, I think it's actually very dehumanizing to men um, and unbiblical to say that they need women because they're barbarians. God says that men are image bearers of God and that in Christ they have the Holy spirit. And so therefore they have the ability to say no to sin. And they don't need women to say no to sin. And women don't need men to say no to sin. But we do need each other. And scripture does say that, right? 
So I think it's important that we recognize that we need each other, but that we don't um, depict that need as something that where we're animals without each other. That's not biblical. Okay. Now, that's interesting. One, one of the arguments that I've heard made, for example, Dennis Prager, who's a Jewish talk show host. I'm actually reading his commentary in Genesis right now. And he says, when you look at the vast majority of crime that's done, it's single young men. It's not mm. married men. Because when right. men get married, marriage has this civilizing effect on men that all of a sudden mm-hmm. I've got to provide the the shift and the focus ter- somewhat changes within. And there mm-hmm. is a natural way that this helps men. I, to give a practical example, I look at, I don't know if you've seen the, the Cobra Kai series based on Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. I was it. watching this. I'm like, Johnny and Daniel sometimes want to kill each other. <laughs> But who, right. gives, who gives them perspective in this show is sometimes right. the women. It's like they speak mm-hmm. into them. And right. is there a way to maintain the fact that God has made us different and men mm. are full of testosterone, they want to go to war, right. and there's something about the women in their lives that do play that role <laughs> without putting mm-hmm. the responsibility on women saying, yep, it's right. your job. Is there a way right. to balance that or would you take issue with the way I even framed that? No, I mean, I think that's very fair pushback. And I did notice that in the series, that the women have a calming effect on the men, or they'll just say you're being stupid. Um, <laughs> I think that it is it is so, so true that men and women need each other, even when we think about singles in the church. Um, we need one another. We need one another's perspective, and we need one another's difference, right? Because God created mm-hmm. men and women different because we need each other. So I don't want to... Um, underemphasize that. And I think it's fair that you point out that there are studies and, you know, that might prove that men do better in relationship with women. I think that makes sense. What I don't want to fall into is depicting women as having the moral responsibility for what men do. Right. Gotcha. Um, So that if a man does something monstrous, uh, first of all, that man doesn't have to do something monstrous. He has the ability to say no. Um, that's what scripture tells us, right? Gotcha. We we are no longer, no, Christians are no longer slaves to sin. So I don't want men or women making an excuse for their actions by saying, oh, I just, you know, I didn't have a woman to take care of me, so I acted out. I don't think that there's room for that kind of excuse in scripture. But I do think you make a really important point that it is so clear that men and women are different and those differences, um, that we need each other. Complement one another. We do compliment one another. Yeah. And even the women weren't necessarily spouses, although sometimes they are. Right. And some of the times you said when they're like, calm down, I'm like, I don't know if they would listen to a guy. There's something about the power Mm, of a woman here in this role that compliments. Let me jump two questions, if that's okay. And then I want to I want to let you go. Uh, Meredith says, let me let me bring this this over and uh, make this correction here just so you can see it says, do you think it's sinful or wrong to have these thoughts or desires about someone you have dated for four years? They feel almost impossible Mm. to avoid at this age and in this society. Mm -hmm. Well, it kind of goes back to the difference between sexual and sinful, right? So I think to have feelings, uh, to have a desire to have sex with someone that you love, that you're not married to, is a very natural desire. Mm. And in some ways, you know, when you're leading up to marriage, those feelings increase, right? And I don't think that that's wrong. I think that's part of the way God created us. But what I would say to Meredith is that it's what you do with those desires. And so 
this might sound strange, but I think that um, denying yourself sexual sin is, um, I think, I'm trying to think of who's called it a kind of a liturgy. Um, it's almost like fasting, right? You fast okay. in order to pray. Okay, so when she has those thoughts, if she's not able to give in to them in a God-honoring way yet because she's not married, she gets to take those urges and give them to God and say, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm struggling with. Would you meet me in this? Um, in other words, don't try to do it alone. Don't try to do it apart from prayer. God's giving you a chance to cry out to him the way that when you're fasting and you're hungry and you can't give in, that you cry out to him through prayer. Um, I think that that's, it's actually a really beautiful time in your relationship where you are depending on God um, and you are just very vulnerable about your weaknesses. A lot of wisdom. Thank you for that answer. What, one more question from Brando says, uh, what is your opinion on the idea that you'll find a wife, husband when you stop looking or if you don't go hunting, you won't find someone? I've heard both said Oof. towards me. Oh, man. Um, well, you get the same thing when you're trying to have kids. Um, oh, so people, true. Yeah, people will say once you stop trying, then you'll get pregnant, or once you adopt, you'll get pregnant. Um, uh, listen, people are always trying to figure out why God does what he does or doesn't do what he doesn't do. And the truth is there is divine mystery. And I know incredible people who would make incredible spouses who are still single. And I know, um, you know, okay, and we know people who maybe aren't very great spouses, but they're married to a great. So if we try to turn it into a math problem, it's not going to work. Um, and I would say that if you have the desire to be married, it is not wrong to pursue that. But we just have to remember that it's not a promise. And so God often meets us in his nose. And um, so if he's not giving you the desire of your heart now, it's just like the other question, um, desiring sexual intimacy, but it's not the right time. You desire marriage and he's not giving it to you yet. Cry out to God. Tell him your heart. Um, mm. And that in and of itself can be worship. Mm. Rachel, that is awesome. I uh, I want to commend to our, our, our viewers here, talking back to purity culture. Your parent, Thank your you so teacher, much. basically anybody who is trying to teach a biblical sexual ethic in light of where culture is today, I think they're going to find this book really helpful. Mm -hmm. So I'm more than happy to commend it really appreciate you coming on uh hang on at the end Absolutely. don't disappear but those of you uh watching today we have some super cool interviews coming up make sure you hit subscribe we have a medical doctor coming on to talk about near-death experiences yeah. i'm bringing on a professor to talk about cannabis and the christian we have some behind the scenes interviews with nancy piercy and Lee Strobel, we just have some great interviews coming up. And this channel is brought to you by Biola Apologetics. So if you've ever thought about studying apologetics, there's information below. We have a certificate program. Now we are fully distanced in our master's apologetics program. So we would love to help train you to be a resource for the church. So thank you for tuning in. And by the way, on this topic, while I have you... I had a chance to interview, you'll find this interesting, Rachel. I had a chance to interview Richard Ross, who was one of the co-founders mm -hmm. of the True Love Waits campaign ah. back in 1993. And I'm releasing wow. that on this channel Monday morning to try to spread the word. And I was really gracious and respectful because he's someone I love and I look mm -hmm. up to, asking the tough questions. Some people might think I didn't mm -hmm. go far enough. Some people might've thought I went too far, but he tells <laughs> some of the story 
back to some of what's happened in purity culture from his perspective that was really, really interesting. So wow. those of you who enjoy this conversation, check that out. It's It'll be released early Monday morning uh, on this channel. Again, make sure you hit subscribe and notification. Got some often awesome interviews coming up. So Rachel, hang on. Don't disappear. But the rest of you, thanks for coming on and hanging with us. Uh, we lost Rachel, Thank but you. she kept coming back <laughs> and still had a great conversation. It is what it is. This is the world we live in. So we'll see everybody really soon.